Good morning. Glad to be back with you this morning. So, relationships. You've all heard this phrase that in church circles we talk about it's not a religion, it's a relationship. We've heard it a thousand times and probably even said it ourselves. Sometimes I hear that statement and I wonder, what do we mean exactly when we say that? When you think about it, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? Not just another person, but God. Prophets and poets and philosophers and theologians and preachers and all kinds of other people have tried their hands at describing and defining God, at figuring out just what we can and can't know or understand or not understand about God, trying to figure out how do we get close to God? Is that even possible? And so, in a seven-part series, I get one message, 40 minutes more or less, to define, describe, reinforce, challenge, and encourage our relationship with God. Uh, The very thought of it makes me sweat. Because this entire book is about our relationship with God. Every last bit. Every last part. It's poetry and history. It's a songbook and prophetic utterance. It's narrative or story. It's proverbs and letters and apocalypse. This amazing collection of writings of real people in real places across cultures and several thousand years, people who are messed up and messy, and whom God speaks through. This book is God's book. His revelation of himself and to us. It tells us the truth about who we are, about who he is, And how we're supposed to get along with him. And so much more. So where do you start? The more I thought about this, the more perplexed, frankly, I became. There are just so many ways to approach this topic. And the reality is there is no way to come close to covering the entire topic in one sermon. Or one series. It is a lifetime's worth of work, to be honest. So my goal this morning is not to answer all of the questions. Or to give us a user's guide of how to have a relationship with God. This is not a self-help slash couples therapy session with God. Instead, I want you to think of today's message as a starting point. Think of it as a compass heading to get us moving in the right direction. Because we can only scratch the surface. You see, I believe that we need to start with the idea that Jesus gave to us in John 17, verse 3. 
He's praying to the Father. And he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As Christians, we believe that our relationship with God is the single most important relationship we have. We believe that our relationship with God is what makes us truly human, truly alive. So getting it right is important. So as we move into this this sermon, I want us to start with that idea. This is our most important relationship, and the Bible is all about that. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that we would catch just a glimpse of who you are and how you want us to relate to you. I pray that we would see just how important it is for us to understand what you are up to and how you have revealed yourself in your word. pray that the words that I speak today would reflect you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as I thought about how I would approach this sermon, I realized that one passage wouldn't cut it. And that sometimes, in order to understand what a relationship ought to be, specifically a relationship with God, we got to start with looking at some wrong relationships. And I see four basic ways throughout Scripture that we get our relationship with God wrong. And the first is by avoiding and denying and ignoring God. Those three things aren't identical. But essentially, they all end up in the same place. When we do these things, the people who do these things may look different, They may often be very different from one another. Some are atheists, and some at least seem to be very devout. But they all end up in the same place. See, these are people who are, I would say, God-haunted. Sometimes even God-obsessed. But they don't really have or want a relationship with God. In Luke chapter 12, we find an example of this kind of person. The kind of person who simply doesn't want to think about God and probably avoids Him at all costs. There's no church, no religious trappings, no thoughts about God, either positively or negatively. So in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 and following, Jesus tells the story about the rich fool. It's a story about greed, really. But I want us to look for a moment at what's going on sort of in the background of this story. Luke 12, verse 16 says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. We know the story. This is a man who is not thinking about God at all. 
He simply goes about his life feeding his own happiness. Whether he believes or doesn't believe doesn't really matter because he's living as if he doesn't. And this is where most of our culture is at today, regardless of whether they are atheists or claim to be believers. God fairly rarely, if ever, comes into play for them. They don't need him and they don't think about him. This person is just as likely to say, why should I care, as to be antagonistic to faith. And too often, we are not much different as believers. We're like the person in James chapter 4 who plans out what he's going to do, the business he's going to, to take part in, and really doesn't ask, does God want me to do that? So, some just avoid God. Others outright deny God. We think of radical atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins when we hear this. Or the growing host of people who are convinced that religion will die out because reason reigns supreme. Of course, look around the world and you can see that religion is not dying out. And Psalm 14.1 tells us, Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. But atheists are not the only ones who deny God. If you turn to Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72, we see that the person who would become, according to Roman Catholic theology, the first pope denies God. Jesus has been arrested He's being tried illegally in the middle of the night. And this is what we read, starting with verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to them. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. See, before we get too hard on those that don't believe, we need to remember that all too often, we are tempted to deny our Savior as well. Abandoning him for safety or the approval of others. Sometimes we simply ignore God. We know he wants something from us. He wants us to do something or to listen. But frankly, we're not interested. God will cramp our style. We treat him like that annoying person we know who always wants our time and attention and can't seem to take the hint that we aren't interested. They're always asking for something. And so we do our best to ignore them. And sometimes we end up playing the part of Jonah, willfully ignoring the call of God on our lives because it's going to take us to places and people that we don't like. 
After all, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says to God, not, I don't want to go there, not, I wanted, I, not, I wanted to call down destruction. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Sometimes I think that Christians are the best at ignoring God because, frankly, we don't want mercy to extend to people we don't like. The second way that we get our relationship with God wrong is by using Him or at least attempting to. Scriptures are full of people who tried to use God for their own gain. Few came to mind as I was thinking about this. In Numbers 22, Balak is the king of Moab, and he hires the prophet Balaam to curse Israel so they won't invade. This is after the exodus is is taking place and they're coming in. And he literally tries to hire someone to curse them so they can't invade. Or the wicked kings of Israel like Ahab who try to get God to do what they want. Or Simon the sorcerer in Acts who sees what the apostles can do and says, Hey, give me that power. But the servants of God aren't much better. When we look at the entire book of Judges... We see cycle after cycle after cycle. Both the people of God, the children of Israel, who constantly do evil, repent when things get bad, and then start the cycle over again, and the judges who are sent and called to keep God's law, They're not much better. As we go on through the judges, they get progressively worse and worse, and we end up with the last judge, Samson, who is the most gifted and the most flawed, and we know how that story ends. He loses his sight and ultimately his life because he wants to use his relationship with God Or use God, more importantly. Unless we think this is only an Old Testament problem, Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 20, we find a very interesting story. James and John apparently send their mother with a request from Jesus. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. This is why I think they sent mom with this question, because they're the ones that answer right away. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, 
But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. You see, just like any other relationship, we are often tempted to use our relationship with God to further our own ends. Even when we're not the villain in the story, even when we are the disciple. And all too often, it's too easy for us to look at God, to look at this relationship as one that I get something out of. The third way I see in Scripture that we get our relationship with God wrong is by reducing it to following the rules. We see it most clearly in the life of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisee system was born in that 400 years in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And the people of Israel had seen over and over again that if they neglect the law, bad things happen. And so the Hasidim arise and they give rise to the Pharisees. And the whole idea is, hey, we have to stop abandoning the law. And now Jewish culture has been corrupted by Greek culture and Greek thought. And the Pharisees believed that if they could get everyone to actually obey the law, that God would bring his kingdom back to earth and reestablish it in the here and now. That's why the Pharisees did what they did. That's why they created rules as a safeguard around the law. Because they felt like if we can make sure that everyone follows the law, then God's kingdom will be reestablished. Today, we would call this legalism. And the labels make us feel better about ourselves because I am not one of those. Have you ever noticed that when we use the word legalism, we always apply it to people we don't approve of? It's something, you know, we want to do something and we want to justify ourselves. And so the person who tells us no, we call them a legalist. I have never found anyone who considers themselves a legalist. But here's the thing. Pharisees and legalists are not bad people. They want to do the right thing. They want stability. They want consistency. And they want to know what the rules are And they expect everyone to follow the rules. Everyone plays by the rules. Everyone gets treated equally. These are the people who hate it when superstars on sports teams get treated differently. Everyone should be treated the same, right? The problem with the Pharisee or the legalist is not the rules. The problem is it's that that is as far as it goes. The rules have become the be-all and end-all. And we see this most clearly in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 27. On the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some of the heads of grain. Jesus and the Pharisees said to them, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Essentially, they're saying, Hey, they're working. They shouldn't be working. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. 
And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, what Jesus is saying is the rules are there for living. For living, not the goal of living. And when we reduce our relationship with God to following the rules, we cut the heart out of the relationship part. We make it simply duty. And resentment creeps in. And it's no wonder that people outside of our faith want no part of it. Because what was supposed to be a life jacket has become a straitjacket. And God becomes not father or friend, but that cranky boss that we have to placate so that he doesn't bother us. Closely related to following the rules is a confusion. A confusion of knowing about and knowing. Again, throughout scripture we see this error. You see, the Israelites think they're superior to the nations around them. Because they know about God. They know the truth about God. After all, the point of Genesis, especially the creation account in Genesis 1, is to show that the Israelites are a different sort of people than the people around them. You see, they know who God is, unlike their pagan neighbors who think that the gods are the God of the sun or the dirt or the sky or the storm. They know that God is not that person at all. God is the God who created all the dirt and the sun and the sky and the storms. The God of their people is not the God of the Nile. He is not the fertility God Baal. He is not small and petty. His name is Yahweh. I am who I am. The one on whom Every being of every kind relies for their very existence. It's such a sacred idea to the Jewish people that they won't say his name. Instead, opting for the word Adonai, Lord. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is confronted by the rich young ruler. Probably this man is a leader in the local synagogue. Maybe he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And by his position, he know, we would know that he knows a great deal about the law, about who God is. And Jesus asks him in verse 19, or he asks Jesus, sorry, in verse 19, what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus' response is sort of curious. And one of the things that he says is, you know the commandments. And this man's response was basically our last example. Well, yes, I have done all of these things. And so what does Jesus do? He says, go and sell everything that you have. See, the man was looking for a list of rules, more knowledge. If I get this stuff right, if I understand what to do. But the problem was he didn't want to make the step from knowing about to knowing. Because actual relationships require interaction. They they require that we are engaged with the other. We have to step beyond what we have learned in a classroom. We have to go from memorization 
to implementation. So we contrast the rich young ruler to the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And I'm going to read this passage because I want us to see how this is different. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You, cannot, you can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. The Son of of Man, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. And the verse that we all know. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth shall come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I find this passage interesting because, one, it's far more involved than what we normally think of. Second, because Nicodemus is asking questions. He starts with wanting knowledge, but he heads much farther than that. He wants to understand what God is actually up to, who God really is. And we know that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, changed from knowing about God to knowing God. Because in John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, we see Nicodemus speak up on Jesus' behalf to the ruling council. And he says, wait a minute, we can't try him illegally. He's arguing for a fair trial. And then in John chapter 19, verses 39 to 42... He buys expensive perfume for Jesus' burial. And he assists Joseph of Arimathea when Jesus is buried. You see, Nicodemus moved from confusing knowing about God, like the rich young ruler, to knowing God. 
Which leads us to our second point. Like Nicodemus, we have to get proper perspective. You've all seen optical illusions, right? You know the, the paintings that are really not paintings. They're computer generated with the multicolors and you stare at them and you've got to look cross-eyed to see the ship or the plane or whatever pop out. Or maybe it's, you've seen this illustration in textbooks. The line drawing that if you look at it one way, it looks like a duck. And if you look at it another way, it looks like a rabbit. Perspective matters. And so we have to change our perspective. And there's a common element in all of these wrong views. You see, they all have a flawed perspective. They all start from the same place. And that place is me. You see, they put self at the center of everything. And so the relationship with God is about them, not God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, born from above, a spiritual rebirth. And that is, you have to look at life differently. When you put yourself at the center of everything, you can't get your relationship with God right. You have to change your point of view. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, repent and believe. And he's making a very clear statement. He's saying, give up your old self-centered way of looking and at the world, of being in the world, and change your pattern of behavior by taking on my perspective and my way of being in the world. In Romans 12, chapter 2, Paul says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. What does that mean? That means that our perspective has to change. The entire purpose of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 is to show us that in every area of our life, we have to get out of the driver's seat. We have to get ourselves out of center stage. We have to move to a God-centered viewpoint. Perspective matters. Second, There's something about our title that is sort of wrong. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. To which I would say, no, it's really both. Because it's true and false at the same time. If by that statement we mean it's not about the structures and the ceremonies and the pomp and circumstance... Fine. If we mean by that statement that it is first and foremost about us interacting with God, absolutely. But what we often hear when we make this claim is that it's about me and Jesus. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It's much bigger than that. <clears throat> the word religion... I was reminded recently in a statement by the arch-theologian Matthew McConaughey is from two Latin words. Re, Latin roots. Re, meaning again, in legare, which means bind together. So religion is designed to bind us together in our relationship with God. That's its goal. And For the record, it was him uh, 
in an article about the new movie. And he has a very interesting relationship with, with religion himself. But being a Christian is about being in relationship with God. But that relationship is not just me and Jesus. It's always bigger than that. In Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40, we read, One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with questions. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Our relationship is to be with God, and it necessarily, therefore, also means we have to be in relationship with others. And we need to remember that the idea of religion is not foreign to the Bible. We see it, again, throughout the Scripture. There are structures and sacrifices, yes, even rituals and observances, feasts and fasts, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The danger for us, of course, is that they become rote, just something we do to make us feel better. Another set of rules. But even James, the brother of Jesus, mind you, and James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, speaks of religion. He says, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to, take, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and here's the part that we often forget, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So Christianity is a relationship with God and a religion. Because when we see both of them from the right perspective, we can't separate them. Third, we have to start from the right place. And that is God first, then me. Not only is God central, God has to start first. If we have to get ourselves out of the center and rethink our understanding of both religion and relationship, we have to start there. We have to remember that this is God's story, not ours. It is for us, not to us. And it is about us, but only as the secondary characters in the story. We aren't the main character. We come and go, but God is always there, even when we don't see him, and maybe, perhaps, especially them. In Job chapter 38, we're coming to the end of the book of Job, and Job has been complaining, and so has his friends. And then, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Prepared to to defend yourself, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On, On what were its footings set and or who laid its cornerstone? 
while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked off of it, out of it. And it goes, and God goes on from there. We need to remember that this relationship is not one-sided. It's not just me and my relationship to God. It's both ways, and it is not a relationship of equals. This is God, and we had best remember that. See. When we want our relationship with God to grow, to be vibrant and healthy, when we want to feel God's presence, we have to start with God and understanding who He is. We can't do that if we don't know what's going on here. The fourth element I see in gaining, uh, getting our perspective right is to remember this. God is the gospel. It's the title of a small book by John Piper. And I think it's a really important statement. Because gospel means good news. And we truncate it in a hundred ways. Mainly we take verses like John 3.16 and we recite them and we tell people to pray a prayer and ask for forgiveness. And all of those things are true, but they are not enough. You see, the good news is more than the fact that through Christ we get to go to heaven. The gospel is that Christ is our way home to God. In Jesus, who is God, we are once and for all finally and uniquely reconciled to God. Our relationship is secured. And that is what John 17, 3, back in the beginning of the sermon, told us. That eternal life is knowing God. And in all the stories that I've touched on today, in fact, in all of the ones that I haven't touched on today, there is one constant. It is always God who pursues us. The gospel is Jesus. God takes on himself the very means to secure our relationship with himself. We couldn't and we wouldn't do it on our own, so he did. There's a host of ways that the Bible talks about the Bible, the gospel. Interestingly, I can't find one formula from Paul or even from Jesus, no magic prayer, no say these three right statements. And the way he talks about the gospel always changes for the audience that he has. Not the substance of it, but the way that he talks about it. Because the gospel is Jesus, all of him, who he is, what he does, his life, his death, his resurrection. On our behalf. You see, our response to the gospel needs to be more than a prayer, more than a declaration. It has to be a change of perspective so radical, a religion so pure, and a relationship so real that we can no longer confuse knowing about God with knowing Him. We can never settle for simply following the rules, and we recognize that we can't use God. We have to change what we want. We can no longer ignore, deny, or avoid him. Why? Because it is the very nature of God to pursue us. 
to seek out a relationship with us, that he stoops to become one of us and reconcile us to himself, as Paul tells us in Philippians. Or as John reminds us in 1 John 4, 19, that he, we love him because he loved us first. So how do we get our relationship with God right? I see four ways. The antithesis, if you will, of the four ways we get this relationship wrong. How do we know? Relationships require knowledge. The rich young ruler wasn't wrong to spend time and energy to know God's law. Jesus says that he's close to the kingdom. And when we start dating someone, what do we do? We learn about that person. What are they like? Where are they from? What is their family like? What interests them? What do they hate? Why? Why do we do these things? Because when we learn things about a person, we learn who they are. And if we don't spend time to find those things out, that relationship is going to wither and die. And it's the same with our relationship with God. We have to learn about Him. He already knows us. Psalm 139 begins, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. And that's just the beginning. If we want our relationship with God to be better, but we are unwilling to spend time to know who He is and what He's done, how do we expect that relationship to last? We have to know about God. We have to remember that this, but we have to, instead of starting from the point where it's all about me and what I know, we have to remember that this is God's story. And everything about it reveals something of himself to us. And we will begin to see differently. We will start to realize that in the people and places and events in scripture, in the stories and laws and songs, we get to see more and more of who God is. This God who pursues us. The God who loves us so much more that he tells us the truth and sacrifices himself for us. Second, we need to see that rules are the beginning, not the end. You see, the problem, as I said, with the legalists and the Pharisees is not the rules. It's seeing the rules as the goal. The rules are the beginning. They're there for our flourishing and protection to help us grow. They're parameters that allow us to flourish. Thinking, think of this as pruning a fruit tree. If you don't, it will grow on, in an unhealthy manner. Or if you have to create something. If you don't have parameters... If you don't have rules, even if you don't understand them, it becomes very hard to do. You need to know where to go so it's not a shot in the dark. We need the rules. We need the commands of the scripture. They're there for our flourishing, but they aren't the goal. Remember, the Sabbath was created for us. It's a reminder of our relationship with God and a tool to help us to be who we are created to be in relationship with him. Third, our relationship with God requires that we change what we want, what we desire. We have to exchange our selfish desires for the desires of God. And this is true repentance. 
But all too often, we try to change this on our own. We make it about us instead of about him, as if it were up to us to change so that we can be good enough for God. And that is anti-gospel. Romans 12.2, as I said, says that God has to change us. And in Psalm 51.10, the psalmist says, Create in me a clean heart. Why? Because we can't do it on our own. In Romans 7, Paul himself recognizes the war within and says, I can't do what I want to do, what I ought to do. We have to rely on Christ. We must work on a relationship with Him to change our inmost desires. Jesus says where our treasure is, where our, our treasure is, our heart is in Matthew 6. And in order to get those inmost desires to change, we have to start by making Him the center of our desire. Which means that we must do the opposite of ignoring, denying, or avoiding God. First, we must engage. Relationships take work. We have to pursue just as we are pursued. Our relationship with God won't change if we don't pursue Him. Can't do it alone. You see, being engaged with God means being a part of His family. Christians are called the children of God in the body of Christ, among other images in the New Testament. And all of Paul's letters do at least two things. They tell us how to love God and how to love one another together. Second, we have to confess. This is the opposite of denial. The admission of who we are, the declaration of it. Romans 10, 9-13 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Good relationships aren't hidden. They're proclaimed so that others can see. And finally, we must praise Him. You see, when our relationship with God is right, we can't keep it inside. And we see this, too, throughout Scripture. As I said in the beginning, This entire book, the reason why it's so hard to preach and figure out how do you contain this sermon is because everything about it is about getting our relationship with God right. From Moses to Mary, from David's Psalms to hymns in the church of Corinth, God's people praise him. It is necessary for our relationship with God because in and through it, we catch a glimpse of who he is. And so as we close, I would ask you to stand and I'm going to read Psalm 100. I think it's fitting. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name, for the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Amen.